In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Oh, you know what I've been watching? I've been watching the old Unsolved Mysteries, like oh, yeah. the one that oh, was we, on oh, the old we were ones. young. Yeah. I've okay. also been watching the new one recently, which I like. Did, did you finish the new ones? No, I didn't finish them. Um, okay. I'm like probably like six or seven or six. There's seven, only like six episodes, I think. Oh, really? Maybe I did finish it. Yeah, I, I think you might be done. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't even know if I finished it then. But yeah, I've, I've watched a bunch of them. And then the old ones are on, oh man, what are they on? I don't remember. Maybe Amazon Prime. Either way, they're just like I remember them. I'm just like instantly transported back when I watch them. I just yeah. feel like I'm that like little boy in my room staying up late and watching uh, Unsolved Mysteries on Lifetime after Golden Girls. Oh, my God. <laughs> but yeah. And then I also just watched a, a Netflix true crime documentary called I think it's pretty new. It's called American Murder at the Family Next Door. And oh, it's yeah. The Shannon Watts heard- case. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've heard that it's like film. I haven't watched it, and I don't actually know the story. But I've heard that it's filmed in a way that there's no like recreations or interviews. It's all like actual footage of them. Wow, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, when that's totally true. There's very few, like, there's Talking no recreations heads. or reenactments. There's very few, like, there's interviews. I think, but yeah, all of it is so much of it is documented. I've seen a lot of things i've seen like a dateline on it i've seen a bunch of different things about it but i've never seen something that covered it in this much detail and it was pretty it's pretty heartbreaking how how were they so documented like did they just wear gopros on their heads all the time like why is there so much footage well a lot of the footage that you'll see that involves her is because she was very into being on like youtube not on youtube on facebook like she would always like facebook live her kids and she was one of those people that would be like Hey, guy, like not an influencer, so to speak, but think of like, I guess, like a, a personality, a, a mommy blogger type situation, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, yep. that kind your of thing. ideal dream, your dream career. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she was like one of those, you know, oh, here's the kids doing this. And so she, a lot of the footage is her footage of like she would always film things. She was like that kind of girl. Yeah. And then uh, I think you should watch it to see why other things are filmed in between because it's OK. Uh, because yeah, he's pretty could, telling. Spoil some things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a little bit. If you've if you've seen anything about it, you'll know as soon as you see some of the footage. You'll it'll instantly be reminded. You'll instantly be reminded of it. But it was it was very good. I I would recommend it. It's it's uh it's very well done. Now here's my question: If I ask you about the crime, like, do they spoil it right off the bat, or is there like a mystery throughout? There's intrigue. Okay. In the beginning, I wouldn't call it like a huge mystery, but there's definitely like circumstantially type stuff for like a little bit. But then I mean, then because it, my, it's, it's bam. <laughs> my immediate question is like, did the husband kill his wife and their kids? I won't answer the full. I won't answer that. Okay. <laughs> I won't answer that. <laughs> I won't answer that. Anyone who knows the case knows the answer to that. You, you do get answers. You get answers okay. to every question. Okay. Awesome. And it's good. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I think it's really well done. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I'll check it out. Miles well, and I, I mean, Miles loves true crime, like documentaries of real stuff. So we'll, I'm sure, watch it at some point. Yeah. Have you, what's new in your life? I was going to say, what have you been watching? But I forgot the original question is like, what's new? Yeah. <laughs> so let me not well, assume that your life is as, as mundane as mine. 
<laughs> I mean, realistically, what are any of us doing in isolation, which is watching TV and listening to things and yeah. maybe, re- maybe reading books, maybe. Um, I actually, so I've been listening to the Hey Riddle Riddle podcast. I, I used to listen to it a while back and kind of like, I don't. I was using it to get through airplane flights because it was like just funny and entertaining and fast paced, and and I also like riddles, and so it was kind of perfect for getting through things like long airplane flights. And then I think when I stopped traveling, I just kind of like naturally stopped listening to it, but I picked it back up because remember I said I finished my favorite murder again and was like, what do I listen to now? And I've already gone through all of Brene Brown's <laughs> podcast. Yeah. How did you? How did you like it? Um, good. I think there might actually be one new episode I haven't listened to. I like it. And actually, I just bought her book, Daring Greatly, which I haven't read. Yeah, I want to read that so bad. I don't know how it, how I've not bought it already, considering how much of her content I'm <laughs> consuming. <laughs> how did you like hear of her just like through the podcast? So I heard of her because her YouTube video went viral back back when she had her TED Talk. It was like oh. nine years ago or 10 years ago when her first TED Talk came out about um vulnerability vulnerability and it went really big it went really big and i don't know if i caught on to it right away but it's one of those viral videos that would resurface every you know so every few months and pop up and so in that time i've heard of her but i really like dived into her dove into her work more because of my favorite murder actually they were talking about her book daring greatly a lot and they were talking about it sort of in conjunction with like mental health and therapy and i was looking for a therapist at the time And so I just got interested in her again. So I started Googling her and watching all of her videos. And then when they mentioned on My Favorite Murder that she had just launched a podcast, I was like, oh, I'm in. And yeah, the rest is is history. (laughs) Great. Uh, Yeah, so I just I literally downloaded it to my Kindle last night and started listening or started reading it. But haven't made it more than maybe like six or seven pages. So I will mm-hmm. report back as I continue to read it. Nice. And you've, you've, uh, back to what you were saying, you've recommended Hey Riddle Riddle to me. So I've subscribed. Yes. I haven't started listening yet, but I haven't, Start- to be fair, I haven't listened to a podcast probably all week besides Brene Brown. So I got to, get on it oh i was gonna say you should definitely start from episode one because they are they're improv comics and they definitely do like callbacks to things oh, from previous episodes so nice. it's the kind of thing you want to start at the beginning perfect i i always start things from the beginning even when people are like you don't need to do season one i'm like uh, yes i do <laughs> i mean the only thing i i the only media i think i've ever recommended where i've said intentionally skip something is parks and recreation like skip season one and just start with season two Mm. I agree with you that season one isn't nearly up to par with the other ones, but I still think it's character building. Yeah. With the exception of Leslie Nope, who they basically made like a female Michael Scott in the first season. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Nice. Cool. Yeah. What else? What else? Uh, that's pretty much all I got going on. How about you? I think that's all I have. In, that's all I have in my life. <laughs> that about wraps it up for me. I, uh, other than this kind of stuff, that's all I got. Uh, law and order. <laughs> I, um, I, Matt and I had a, a, uh, a heated debate last night over whether the words law uh. and blah rhyme. And so I told him that I would take to the internet and ask the internet for their opinion on, t- on whether law and blah rhyme. And, Here's what I'll say. Opinions are very divided. 
They um, they have to be because it's yeah. all in the inflection of how you the way you say them. I will admit the way you're saying those words, they sound like they're they rhyme. rhyme. I okay. don't talk like that though. Well, I when you say it, it still sounds like a rhyme to me. Say it. Okay, but here's the thing. I can't just say the two words together because no one just... Well, okay, so if I were saying blah, that's how uh-huh. I say it. Blah. Okay, blah. If I'm saying the other word, I say law. Law. Like coffee. Law. Sausage. Okay, so there's like a... Law. Law. Awful. Law. <laughs> it's like a little bit of an awe because I'm from Jersey. <laughs> yeah, and I think that uh, most of the people were like, well, in my area of the world, we say like... Those words also rhyme with car. Like, and I was like, are you from Boston? Because uh, um, they, because yeah. I guess ka, yeah. ka, la. Uh, but they're from Yorkshire, which is in the UK? Question mark? <laughs> it's over the pond. Okay, great. Anyway, as I expose my terrible geographical knowledge. Uh, so the internet's pretty divided. Uh, you found a website that says it's a close rhyme or a near rhyme. I yeah. found a website that says it's a rhyme. I think uh, neither of us will ever be vindicated, but uh, I choose to believe that I'm right. Yeah, I. you could choose to believe whatever you want. I believe that there's a camp of people out there who believe that these words rhyme and they just simply speak. Very strange. I would oh, say wow. incorrectly. I would say incorrectly, but I don't want to be so polarizing. It's just not how I, uh, la, blah, la, I don't know. Well, you also, you also, when you say like blah, you're kind of going like blah. I know (laughs) it's hard. hard. I have to think of how I would say it naturally. Like if I was like, blah, 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 that's how I say it still. Right. Blah, 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 la, la, la. It's like fa, la, 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 the, in like the Christmas. It's like blah, 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 la, la, la. See, oh, not no. the same. Not well. That's definitely not the same. Exactly. See, thank God we never say la la la, <laughs> unless we start just reading Christmas jingles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, this is ripped from the headlines. It is a fact and fiction podcast that looks at episodes of Law and Order and the true crimes that inspired the show. I am N, and yeah. over there is Matt. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm over here. can you see him and uh you're the you're the episode person today i'm the episode guy i am uh so yeah so if you're tuning in you're a new listener we recap the episode in the first half of our episode (laughs) in the first half of our episode it's probably better inflection and the second half is the true crime and the person who is recapping the episode has vowed (laughs) Not to look up the true crime. <laughs> yeah. So I have a, a guess, but I don't think it fits up time period wise. Yeah. Because uh, uh, mm-hmm, I think I know exactly what, what you would guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I didn't want to look up the time period of the guess because I didn't want to spoil it if it was correct. So I Can didn't I guess what you it. guessed and then oh, tell yeah, you sure. whether or not it's right? Yeah. Or uh, I won't tell you whether or not it's right. Okay. Did you guess Heidi Fleiss? Correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I remember the Heidi Fleiss thing, which makes me think it's later in time because I would have been young. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, but that probably colors a little bit of what the episode's about. If you wouldn't Mm -hmm. get it from the title, which let me just start off right off the bat by saying when I say words that are inappropriate, I am simply quoting like titles or I'll say I'm quoting it. (laughs) 
Yeah. These aren't words that I would typically use. So this is episode seven of Law and Order season one. The title is By Hooker, By Crook. And yes, you heard me right. It's a play on by hook or by crook. That phrase that's, you know, means like by, you know, any For whatever means possible means or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it's by hooker, comma, by crook. So you get it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we open the episode. It's December in New York. It's beautiful. Well, I guess it doesn't look beautiful. In the episode, it looks it's very cold. gray. Yeah. yeah, it's it's winter in Central Park. It's not but fresh snow. It's like snow that's been there for a couple days. Yeah, and it's, it's a little dingy. It's overcast. It's it's gross out. But I just miss that snowy New York feel. Mm-hmm. The taste of the air in New York City in the wintertime is just like it's just beautiful. They, I don't know. It's clean. What does it, it taste cleaner. Like? It tastes clean. Like there's like a crispness and lightness to the to the air like after the snow like this fallen is snow there, is has there a almost Yankee like a candle scent. fragrance uh new york winter <laughs> i wonder like a, if there is i hope there's also a candle video of someone oh <laughs> really God, really mad candle woman <laughs> that could be me i could be it i could really be that woman could be you dreams so it's Central Park, and there's two cops on horseback, and they are sort of patrolling in the daytime, and they're talking about a case recently where evidently a guy was found taped to his ceiling, naked in a hotel room. Well, how does that even happen? Right, and I, you know, I get it. They're trying to have like, they're laughing about it, like, oh, you know, blah blah. Ha ha! You yeah, won't believe the ridiculous wild, thing I saw. you know. And so they're interrupted from any future like potential kink shaming. <laughs> by an extra on her way to the set of tiffany's i think we're alone now mall tour music video (laughs) that outfit that sweatsuit and the headband was out of this world the bangs the the outfit the ponytail the low ponytail that was just like super straight the bangs that were just like way too long and she she's running at them screaming about something her dog found maybe a glove maybe a hand she doesn't know but the way she's doing it it's like a choreographed dance routine it it's really so is. like it's not manic enough to be a panic but it's <laughs> it's just a little bit too like arm wavy too it's anime, like yes. one two three it's a little like <laughs> she almost busts into a herky there it's was a, a lip sync for the- your life <laughs> There was, yes, a very desperate lip sync for your life where she doesn't know the words, so she's just doing really big gestures to make up for it. Exactly. There's a line at the end of this episode that made me think, and maybe I'm, maybe you can <gasps> tell me if this is correct or not. Okay. Oh, am I going to root? No, no, okay. no, because I, ha- that's so funny. I'm wondering if it's the same thing, because I wrote it, something down. Was not it right like yet. they implied that somebody involved in the situation was the one who found the person? Like, did they imply, like, are we meant to understand that this woman purposefully discovered him? Oh, I don't think so. Okay, okay. I thought I, I think so. like, heard that at the end of the episode, and I was like, wait, but we didn't even really ever see her face up close, so I'm not sure who she was supposed to be. Okay, so yeah, I got that Yeah, I don't think so. I think she was just a lunatic on the street, like, <laughs> walking her dog and waving her arms in the air and screaming. And it was the worst acting I've seen probably Terrible. so far. And we've seen a lot of bad acting in this show Man. so far on extras parts. No offense. This is I mean, the absolute at least, worst. At least the other ones are, like, trying to be theatrical and over mm-hmm. the top, and, like 
She's not like going for it all the way. Production. Yeah, no. she doesn't want it bad enough. It's very like, and even like her voice, like I, th- I, I found something, maybe a glove. Oh dear, it's just like it's very much like uh, it's not middle school theater. It's the <laughs> middle school theater teacher reading the part in front of the class. <laughs> exactly. It's the it's the SAT prep teacher that's like helping you with English that wanted to yes. be a creative writing teacher, and yes. so sh- they like bring in their own work. And dramatically read it. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's who that's who they encounter. <laughs> She's losing her mind and they follow her and they find it is unfortunately not just a glove, it's a body. Okay, and then so in the next scene, as the unidentifiable man is being rushed to the hospital, he's still he's still alive. alive. He's not conscious though. We get Detective Logan shouting, Make sure you bag it all, which is Bobby. something <laughs> Yeah, Bobby, make sure you bag it all. I was like, this is something on my list of like that cop slang in every true crime thing. Like, well, and and bag bag it all. Like the snow? (laughs) Right. Well, we find out what they bag in a bit, but you know. Oh, that's true. That's true. They go through the trash can. Yeah. And so they're at the hospital and uh, Detective Grievy is asking the doctor, and they're literally standing over the victim who's like unconscious in the bed. So he's asking the doctor if the victim's going to wake up, and we are treated to the first of many offensive moments in the episode. Uh, there's if you if you miss if you don't count the uh, <laughs> the kink shaming at the beginning, yeah. So just fun piece of trivia: this episode was going for the Guinness World Record <laughs> of offending of like yeah. as many varied demographics as possible within the span of an hour. So get ready. Uh, it fell just a little short, I guess, because I couldn't find the record. So <laughs> he says, the doctor says that the nurse's pool says no. And Grievy's like, oh, how much are they putting on it? And he's like, 30 bucks. He's like, ah, yeah, if, if it was 100, I believe it. They must not believe it. You know what? I'm going to text my mother-in-law right now who used to work in the ER. And I'm going to ask her if there was ever a, a like nurse betting pool on whether people would survive. Because I did not think that that could be a thing. I don't believe... I have a friend who's a nurse and I just would be shocked. Like, I'd be shocked. He proceeds to explain that the man had a blow to the head, but what was worse than that was the heart attack. And they didn't know about this. And so they asked, like, well, what was the, you know, order of operations here? What was the PEMDAS? <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, they don't, they, they, first they excused their dear Aunt Sally, and then, <laughs> I know. That was terrible. I know. He says they, they have no idea which order it happened. It could have been either way. And funny thing, though, his underpants were on backwards. And I thought, wow, thank you for that medical detail, Doc. <laughs> yeah. And then we cut to the miniseries that is the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to say, I'm noticing more and more about the opening credits every week. It ends with the most severe, sireny sounding like sound, and it drags on for a long time. It's almost shrill if you have headphones in when you're watching it. Yeah. Beware. <laughs> so back at the station, they're going through what was bagged at the scene. I guess Bobby brought it all back. And Grievy starts with a glass eye, and he goes, Gabbage. <laughs> And sauces it aside. And he goes through everything saying gabbage as he's doing it. (laughs) I can't. Um, Eventually, they come across what is not gabbage. It's a wallet. And so they cut to the detectives speaking to who now we can assume is the victim's wife. Um, Oh, yeah. They're at the hospital. And, you know, there's a lot of like 
a lot more of assuming who people are in this episode, I would say. There's a lot of people who I couldn't, I had to keep rewinding to figure out who some of these people who were. They were. Yeah. It was kind of like that first episode where I was like, who is this random man that we keep seeing that nobody has ever introduced? Right. So like this one was more obvious than some others that'll come, but there's not a lot of like obvious things, which I, I think is better when they did don't spell it out so Did this one also feel kind of like weirdly different to you thematically? Like did it, like I almost was kind of thinking it felt more like the pilot than some of the other episodes oh, we'd seen. Oh, really? I actually, I disagree. I think it felt way more um, like the other episodes than the pilot. Okay. I was saying it was like a welcome reprieve actually, mm-hmm. but and so okay so they're at the hospital and they're talking to the the wife and she's sitting in a hospital bed she's not you know she's just sitting there and i just got a an all capitals text back from my mother-in-law never (laughs) (laughs) so apparently that is not a thing she ever saw happen thank goodness she's probably insulted you even asked that's how like that's how ridiculous she she just said literally said that's disgusting amen what is her name uh carolyn shout out to carolyn (laughs) (laughs) it is indeed disgusting so she the the wife of the victim is looking through her she has she's sitting there holding her purse and she's like i talked to him at 8 p.m he was late for dinner and he had said he was going to be home from work late and she has this really strange pause where she just like pulls out five loose photographs from her purse (laughs) and goes these just got processed today and i'm sorry i remember getting film developed i remember that process no one's walking around with five loose photographs in her purse no especially not in that without that little drugstore envelope envelope that they come in with the negatives that you don't want come on prop guy hello and so she doesn't know why they are interested in her photos you know whatever they take them it's very strange. It, that doesn't even mean anything. But she doesn't know why he had been in Central Park, she says, because he works pretty far from there. Mm-hmm. So the next scene, we're at his job at Zarin Fabrics. No, wait, what? <laughs> no, I wish. It's just a big fabric store. But like literally as soon as the scene started, <laughs> I was watching it with Davey, uh, my partner. And he goes, oh, my God, is that Zarin Fabrics? Jill Zarin. <laughs> But unfortunately, they talked to someone who's not Jill Zarin. <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut to season one of Real Housewives of New York for Jill anybody Zarin. who's not in a New York or a Housewives fanatic like we are. I have to tell you, I found that there is a good. I feel like there's a good cross section of of true crime of and true housewives. crime and Bravo watchers. I also find a pretty a pretty good crossover of drag race listener like drag race watchers and like true crime people as well. Yeah, we we know our people. We found we, we found our our communities. Welcome. Welcome. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. So, no Joe's Aaron, but it's an equally enjoyable actress and she says that the victim, whose name by the way, I don't know if it's been mentioned yet, but I'll just start saying it is his last name is Diamond. And they often call him Mr. Diamond. Mm -hmm. And I had to keep, I rewound a few times to see like, is this like a colloquial like nickname? No, Mr. Diamond. (laughs) Diamond. He's the next, he was like the reject from the original cast of Clue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really, I want to watch Clue again. Let's do that sometime this month. I would love to. October. Yeah. One of my favorites. And I know it's like literally your favorite, right? Literally my favorite movie of all time. I got, we, that's perfect. All right, so they ask the the worker there who was working with him on his last shift, and she said that he he asked her to go out for drinks with him, and she he's done it before, but she quote likes her job, but not that much. 
girl, I get it. And so they go to the bar that she mentioned, and it's called Jangles. Let's start there. Like Bojangles. Yeah, Jangles. Ooh, is this the scene with the guy who is doing the weirdest voice of all time? I'm glad glad that we're on the same page here. Yes. So they're inside talking to the bartender, and he is exactly the type of character you'd expect to work at a place called Jangles. Yes. And he leans in real close to them while he's talking to them, and he has the most, like, strange accent. And I want to, like, how would you describe this man's accent? God, I... It's it's so hard to describe. It's it's um, it's kind of like a little bit of like you know New York, New Jersey, it's it, Italian influence, but like in a very like B-rate movie. I'm a sleazy bartender yeah. vibe on top of it. Yeah, very like this con manny sort of like shyster. Yes. Uh, weird. I wrote that it's like a mix between Slappy Squirrel <laughs> from <laughs> Animaniacs <laughs> and a person doing a bad Robert De Niro impression. <laughs> that's really that's a really good comparison as a bad Robert De Niro. It's so weird. And he's saying things and I'm just going to give you a few hot takes from what he says to them because it's a long scene in this like gross bar. And he basically says things like he's seen the guy before, Mr. Diamonds. He's a real window shopper. And uh, <laughs> he was talking with a girl who acted like she got nothing to look at. <laughs> I literally, the whole scene to me was like, what is happening? I was like, where are we? Where are we? He goes, girls like that say, first it's don't touch, don't touch. Then it's why not? Why not? It was like, I was watching vaudeville. Like I didn't, (laughs) (laughs) it was so weird. So it's really disgusting. It's a really disgusting scene though. Like he's, he's gross. He's completely disgusting, misogynistic pig. And they're all like having this like locker room kind of conversation and he says that you know even when the bbqs the bronx brooklyn and queens crowd came in the teased hair teasers he calls them somehow insinuating that if you're from one of these other boroughs and not like manhattan then you are like lower class okay so i had a question for you an east coast question for you so the 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 phrase bridge and tunnel crowd is the implication there that like you don't have enough money to live in the city but you come in to like take advantage of the city's culture so you're kind of like the riffraff correct yes okay it's, it's, okay uh it's not a shared feeling by many but it's like that sort of you know how when you watch housewives and ramona and uh yeah. sonia would hate to go downtown like yes. the idea of going downtown is such Anywhere, a hassle. Not the Upper East Side, basically. Right. So it's the idea is like, no, no, no. People travel to us. We don't go to right. them. That's where they live because they can't afford to live here. They come to us. It's like, like this on ridiculous. Sex in the oh, you didn't watch Sex in the City. No. God. Okay. I, I need you to get on that because I feel like we're going to have some good Sex in the City references for this show that was yeah i will watch that one the only reason i didn't watch it is because i just never had hbo almost my whole life so it's just now you have my grandma's login (laughs) i know hello hbo (laughs) okay so okay so even when these teased hair teasers were here, he was striking out, blah, blah, blah. And then they leave the bar with this information. Thank God. Thank God. Get the hell out of that bar. I was like, yeah, jingles. I, yeah, I went and I took a shower. I came back. <laughs> um, and then the scene is with Grievy uh, telling Logan that he'd care more if he had kids. Um, 
one of those type of situations. And I wanted to roll my eyes, but honestly, I'm like a totally different human being since we got our dog Neville. (laughs) And I would totally say some kind of nonsense like that to like a non-dog parent, you know? I would totally (laughs) be that person. Like you wouldn't understand until you have a dog. They're really like your kids. That's who I've become. So who am I to judge? So they check the hotel. That's I think it's I couldn't really gather whether they found the hotel on their own recognizance or like how they found this particular hotel. Because I know that yeah, that's true. the bar was attached to a hotel, but they left and came went someplace. So I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. they check they, they strike they strike iron while it's hot and they get the right hotel. And the guy at the front says that he recognized the man because they have the pictures. And so they he says that you know, he's checked out already. He, you know, had no luggage, blah, blah, all the insinuations that he was using the room for sex. sexual purposes. Yeah. And so he's like, oh, okay, show me the maid's quarters. And now we see something that is like, mm-hmm. for me, like the most ridiculous scene. One of the most ridiculous scenes in this episode. I mean, there are literally two back to back right at this moment. Right. So they are now asking a maid essentially what she had found in the room of the victim Ugh. afterwards. And she's Latin X. And <sighs> so they assume that she doesn't understand English. So strike one law and order. Yeah. Then they over enunciate every word they say to her in English and raise their yes. volume to an unnecessary yes. volume, very close to her face. Lots of hand yes. gestures. They're literally doing the typical American thing of like, Oh, you don't speak English. Let me just talk louder. <laughs> Right, right. And strike two, law and order. And then they tell her to get what was in his room, and she goes shamefully to her drawer where she pulls out a newspaper, which was beneath several other things that we're, we can assume are other guests' belongings, suggesting that she would be a thief. And strike three, you're out of control, <laughs> I wrote. <laughs> I think, and it's funny, they, it's like they gave that actor no instructions on her emotional you know like state or how she was feeling like she just seemed really afraid the whole time yeah she felt she looked she did a great job and i i'm sure she's an actress it wasn't a real experience but i can't help but believe i mean you know my partner is latinx and he tells me his experiences in the world as someone who is latin but that if he were in a lineup not everyone would guess he was latin from his physical appearance yeah and so he's experienced like the very different ways people have treated him yeah by what they assume he is you know what i mean and so yeah i hate seeing things like that because it makes me so angry because i see it all the time and if i'm being completely honest and i'll be really vulnerable i used to do this kind of stuff to people mm-hmm. like because i've worked in customer service my whole life and so you know i'm i've been at a register or uh many a time when a customer's that's come in and when they make it clear to me that they have trouble speaking english or they say like do i speak spanish my immediate thought is like, okay, the best way to communicate to this person is I'm going to like over enunciate and like hand gestures. And I (laughs) look back now and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I, I have very much been guilty of doing that, but I am proud to say that I recognize how off, how like off the market is, how disrespectful it comes off and how even my intent was, of course, my intent was only to try to communicate to this person in some way that I can figure out, but yeah. that does not matter because of what it implies, what it suggests, and how it makes the other person feel. Yeah. Uh, I hate seeing that. So I hated that scene. Davey had a really hard time watching that scene, too. 
Yeah. The next scene is not much better, but it's just so confusing to me. This it's whole next really scene is weird. bizarre. So they leave the room where the major's quarters are. And they're sort of like in like you would assume like the basement level of this hotel. And they're walking through this like really dirty corridor area where, you know, there's all these offices or rooms where they're doing like you know, grunt work or whatever, you know, blue collar type work. So it's like dirty. And then they go in, they, they catch, something catches their eye in a nearby open room. And they walk into what is, I think, supposed to be a like dirty office, but it looks like, yeah. like a, a utility a clo- closet. Like a Ill- yes, utility closet. <laughs> Covered yeah. in garbage and like a desk in there. Yeah. So there's a man in there and he, another very strange, unusual character who speaks with a very unusual cadence like yeah. really overacting for this scene. Um, and I, I don't even know who he is. I think he is like a room service operator. I guess yeah, I, it's it, uh, this whole, <laughs> I just made a bunch of sounds. <laughs> did. This episode or this scene is very like, it's even like lit with like red light as I recall. So it just has this weird feel almost like, I just feel like it's, um, it's seedy. They're portraying it as like seedy underbelly crime, dark, it's Do you remember the movie Big? Yeah, with Tom Hanks. What's the name of the? Uh, oh gosh, Z- um, Zor- Zor- Zornak, Zolnak, uh, Zor- Zol- Zol- Zoltar, Zolt- Zoltar, Zoltar. Yeah, I think it's Zoltar. <laughs> We're gonna get a hundred uh, emails about that. Uh, it's <laughs> where it's just like it, it, like the conversation they have with him. Like, a, why did they go in this room? B, why did they assume this man knows anything? And then the conversation they have with him is this very weird one where it's he's almost speaking in like a strangely prophetic way, and yes. it just has this really bizarre feel that in no way seems like it would connect to actual detective work. But it's, you know, str- it's law he's and order. speaking as though he is like a psychic. Yes, it's otherworldly, and it's yes. it's just bizarre. And even like the, the he says like um, so they ask him like what's going on, and he he's the, I wrote that he reminds me of like a New York City CD counterpart to Alice in Wonderland's Caterpillar character. <laughs> kind of, yes. <laughs> it's like weird. He says things like um, they're like they're asking about this guy. He had asked him previously, evidently, to where he can get a girl, and. He told him, a big tipper like, you don't need no girl. But he says it in, like, this really weird way. So anyway, he says that he had been uh, called to bring up champagne to the room. There were two glasses, so he assumed he found himself a girl. And when he goes in, he had a cute little blonde girl with a farm girl face. Who talks like this? (laughs) Um, He says that he thought she was talking lovey, (laughs) but she wasn't talking that. She was talking pool. (laughs) Yeah. So weird. So they somehow know exactly which pool hall to go to. Of course. Yeah. Um, but they're at the pool hall. There's only one in New York, I'm sure. Of course, of course. And so they go to this pool hall. They're asking this guy that's there shooting pool if he's seen anyone with the description of what the caterpillar had told them. And he thinks it uh, might be a girl he knows. Her smile is like a breath of spring. Her voice, <laughs> soft. <laughs> Like summer you know, what's rain. Funny is when you first said that, I was like, "Oh my god, this sounds just like Jolene." I'm gonna come up with a Jolene joke, and then I realized you were doing the Jolene joke. <laughs> and I cannot compete with her. Her no. name is Jolene. <laughs> One of my favorite things on the internet is somebody did like a Tumblr post where they were like, um, "Jolene," but you're not quite clear on what Jolene is. Uh, like. But every line, she gets scarier and scarier until you're not quite sure what Jolene is, but you just know you're afraid of her. And it's like, uh, Jolene, Jolene. 
you know, like things like from like the Jabberwocky, like <laughs> your your eyes that flash, your claws that catch, <laughs> like, <laughs> and on the wind I hear the name Jolene. Like it's just oh my, this that could be like forever. A scary uh, amorphous monster, and I fucking love it. Oh my gosh, I hope I could find someone who like screenshot a bunch of them for like a BuzzFeed article or something. Yes. <laughs> So this guy, at first, I really liked him because he's like, oh, wh- what does she look like? And they go, she's blonde. And he goes, real help. <laughs> I yeah. was like, but then he quickly turns into like a total beast. So he thinks it's this girl, Jolene, and she's on a team called the Femme Fatales. And then he says, they got all types of teams here. Girl teams, gay teams, even a team of transvestites, as long as they pay their fee. Yeah. I am pretty sure that this by this time... It was a known thing that we that the term transvestite is not okay to use, and that it's like very offensive. I'm pretty sure that by the early '90s we knew this. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think some. I think that there's still some people who actually use that word to define themselves, but I think it's like very, very out of vogue and like right. Old, I mean, old fashioned. Like it's, it's. I feel like it's one of those terms that, like, if I were, you know, part of the trans community and I chose to use that to identify myself, then it would be only okay to really use in that way. Right. Wasn't that like a if, like psychiatric evaluating term type thing? I th- I mean I think it is like uh associated with yes like classification um I feel like it like was medical deviant. classification yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but there's like Eddie Izzard or Izzard I guess how you say his name mm-hmm. who identifies as a transvestite so I don't know I yeah. don't I I think so I think there are probably some people who still use that term to describe themselves but for the most part nobody should use it in describing other people unless that person specifically says, please call me this. Right. And also the way he's talking about it is he's saying like, oh yeah, we have all types of unusual teams, girls, gay people, even transvestites. And then singling them out saying like, as long as they pay their fee, like as though, you know, you got to be on top of this group of people. So gross. Gross, gross, gross. In any event, she supposedly works for a company called Messalina. And when they do a little bit of digging, they can't find Messalina, but they find that Messalina is listed as doing business with Poppy Catering. And when they look it up, the address is like in the middle of the river. It doesn't exist. So it's phony. So striking out. And then the detective who I'll, the detectives who I'll describe as like this little boys club right now, they're having yeah. a little discussion about sex work. And it's one of the many. And of course, they don't say sex work. Um, It's one of the many unfair depictions of the industry this episode has, so many of them. And the Mm. then Grievy suggests that he understands why some men cheat, because they get bored at the same thing all the time. And then he tries to make this disgusting sentiment, like, cute, by saying softly at the end of it, you could never know someone else's story. (laughs) (laughs) Do-do-do-do! Like, uh, give me a break. Yeah. So thank God this moment ends because Logan connects Poppy Catering to Poppy Escorts, which was in that paper from the guy's room, which I think is just such a strange detail. Like that would not be how he got, you know, it's just. This whole episode is like real based on really weird circumstantial, like like, cops being psychic. Yeah. And a lot of coincidences that they got lucky with. So. Grievy goes undercover in the next scene as a John, and he is calling Poppy Escorts in this hotel room, requesting a woman by the description of their suspect. (laughs) And he just gets lucky because it's 
there's only one Jolene, I guess. He doesn't say Jolene. I mean, ask Dolly Parton. She would tell you the same thing. She would tell you that, you know, she could have her choice of men. Like, why? <laughs> she would never love again. <laughs> so, uh, this actress that plays Jolene, I will say, I don't know how you feel. I thought she was very good, honestly. She actually was one of the better actors that they've had so far on the show. Yeah, I feel like there were a few scenes that were very believable with her. And so I looked her yeah. up because I assumed she looked a little familiar. And I looked her up, but she hasn't been in anything I've seen really besides maybe like off TV roles. But there are some big stars in this one. So, that more to come. So, Jolene is there, very gifted actress. <laughs> Just going to say it again. <laughs> Should have wrote down her name. <laughs> she asks for the guy's name and cuts to the chase and says, like, are you a cop? Because you got cop shoes, you got cop socks. I've been on, been doing this for a while. But he convinces her. He's, you know, warm and, no, I'm not a cop. And then she gives her her rates and he arrests her. <laughs> yep. And brings her to the station where she says, you know, isn't there something illegal about lying? And he says, oh, well, God, yeah. This yeah. is another one of those moments where, like, just reality <laughs> writes itself. Yep. She says, like, isn't there something legal about lying? And he says, quote, I'm allowed to lie. They pay me to lie, which I'm sure at the time was funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, today. Today, it just like no. about pops a blood vessel and <laughs> blood vessel in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I was so irritated. So yeah. uh, Logan comes in now and we discover that Mr. Diamond has uh, had another coronary in the hospital and has passed away. And so there's like this moment like, okay, you better fess up because they know she was with him and it compels her in the next scene to be telling them what happened. <laughs> the, power, the power of Christ compels, compels her. Compels <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this episode, I wouldn't be surprised if they brought in someone to exercise her because she's, you know, a uh, sexual deviant A fallen in their woman. Mind. Yeah. yeah. So there were... Uh, According to her, they were having sex in the hotel room and he died, or so she thought. She'd never seen a dead man before, so she assumed he had died. But, you know, based on, you know, where he was found and everything, you know, they think he was—they don't know, you know? So she called her driver in the situation. She was panicking, and he said he'd take care of it, and she got scared. And when she left, he wasn't breathing. And so they talked to her driver, whose name is Cookie Molina. <laughs> um, just going to leave that one there. So he's sort of like a I cookie's guess, kind of a cute name. Uh I don't know about that. I think it's a no? cute nickname. Okay. Or like a, oh, or yeah, a I mean like as a, a given name, maybe yeah. not. But like if I'm somebody sure, yeah, like, that's true. I'm sure his I'm sure his birth cookie, name isn't cookie. Yeah. Okay. No, that's cute. Well, in Sex in the City, there's an episode where Carrie gets called Cookie a lot. Granted, it's from somebody who is sexually harassing her. So maybe oh, I will retract everything I've said about it being a cute nickname. <laughs> Let's just say we like cookies and leave it at that. Okay. I do love cookies. Same. So I guess he's like supposed to be like working for like a pimp, I guess they're trying to say. By the way, mm -hmm. I, I'm really unclear. Is pimp still like the term we're using? You know, what's funny is as I was watching uh, this episode, I was wondering the same thing, mm. whether there's a, a new phrase to uh, substitute. And I meant to look it up and I didn't. So yeah, I so did I. while you're continuing the story. Okay, good. So I'm assuming this guy is like a, a person who reports to a pimp is what they're assuming or, or what they're sort of like, you know, putting out. And so um, they get to the 
the area where he is, and there now we see this really gross difference between the way they've just been questioning this white woman who they believe is a suspect, and the way they treat her black driver now, who they immediately aggressively pull out of his car, search it, and pull out his bat. Instantly, they're taunting him and threatening him, saying, you know, we're going to test this bat, we're going to find your prince, we're going to find the right blood. And it's just really disgusting, and I'll just leave it at that. And he acts like this is no big deal, because it's happened before, you know? And that is even more telling. So he tells them that when he got to the room, the guy was already dead, and he called, you know, the his boss, which, whose name is Jasmine, and the plan he was given was to basically dump him somewhere and make it look like a mugging. And so they arrest him. And he says something weird. They put him in handcuffs, and he says, I guess I can tell the future. You guys are going to read me my rights or something like that. And I'm like, that um, was also a very strange line. You're already in handcuffs. You're, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say, no offense, you're, I think what's happening to you is, is unfair, but I wouldn't call yourself any sort of prophet because, you know, when handcuffs are being put on you, you think that you're, you know, being <laughs> arrested. Yeah. So now we are uh, treated to a commercial for 1-900-704-KISS. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and we're urged to pick up the phone. <laughs> do you remember those ads? Yes, I do. <laughs> those late night ads. Oh, my gosh. It's, that's literally what the scene looks like and sounds like. It's a um, – This. let me describe it. <laughs> so, Okay. So we're, we come into this scene where Jasmine, who we just found out about, enters the room in this, like, nighty, and the room looks like it's just a, the longest silk sheet wrapped over everything. There's soft jazz playing, mm-hmm. <laughs> little Kenny G, and there are just a bunch of girls, like, slumped over furniture in various ways, looking bored, and um, Jasmine's standing in the doorway, calling for Grievy, who is undercover again. And I, I can't believe that it wouldn't, word wouldn't have spread <laughs> that the same guy <laughs> that just booked <laughs> um, Jolene. But anyway, he, he goes into her chambers. And uh, she, you know, lays out her rates and she's arrested as well. Uh, quick side note. So there's a... I, I'm willing to be wrong and have somebody else tell me uh, if this is incorrect. But from what I've seemed to find on the internet, that the that the sort of like alternative phrase for pimp is a procurer, somebody who like, procures services. Although there seems to be some kind of like uh, tension around that because generally the perception of somebody who would act in that role is potentially exploiting the women or people who are engaging in sex work. Uh-huh. And so it's sort of one of those things like, is this a, a, a occupation or a, or a, a position that we want to use a, a respectable term for? Right. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to assume there are folks who act as procurers who probably are in like really respectful relationships with the people performing sex work. And I'm sure that there are a lot that are not. So I'm not quite sure which which one would be maybe better to use. So I think maybe just let's err on procurer. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Yeah. And again, if somebody else has more information out that out there on that, please feel free to email me because I would like to get that right. Yeah, we would we would love to know because it is a I'm genuinely asking. Yeah. P.S. I know we talked about this last time. So I've been listening to the Brene Brown podcast and something that she specifically talks about in regard to 
like social justice work or equity work is that, you know, we will make mistakes and we will be wrong. And she has this mantra she repeats to herself of, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. And that I think is such a helpful framework because it allows you to be wrong and be open to being corrected and getting it, getting it right, not necessarily like being right. And so that I just wanted to share that because it's been definitely a really helpful framework for me. Yeah, that is really helpful. I like that. I don't think I've gotten to that episode yet, but that's, yeah, that's pretty much how I feel. Like I want yeah. to get it right. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not at all insulted by being corrected by anyone on this type of thing. I would welcome it. I would thank you for yeah. it. Yeah. So we're back at the station and she, they, you know, they've got Jasmine in custody now. And she's explaining that if a grown man chooses to go to an escort service and then Logan interrupts and says, you mean a whorehouse? Which, again, yeah. disgusting. I fucking hate Logan. He's, he's like, like a pig. He's, he's like really such a pig. pig. And like for someone who in previous episodes has been like the sex positive one, he's pretty disgusting yes. in this one. Like yes. pick, pick, a, pick a lane. Yeah. I, I really, he's in it for way, way, way longer than Grievy is. And so I yeah, really I think, think there's a journey. <laughs> I hope so. But I think this is the only season that Grievy's in, actually. I think it is. And I'm, I, that surprises me because he, I feel like he's more present, but. The next morning, Grievy finds a... They pull an all-nighter. They can't find anything. The next morning, Grievy finds a woman who is being sued by Poppy Catering. And when they arrive at her house, uh, Madam Shoulder Pads <laughs> greets them in her study, looking very wannabe Emily Gilmore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Clue expansion set, Madam Shoulder Pads. Yes. She's uh, probably in her like late 50s, early 60s. She's got a red blazer. A these mantle-like shoulder pads that make her head merely like an object being displayed above a fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> She's got like a black bow tied loosely at her neck and a pin that can only be described as a silver version of what like your paper looks like when you're testing out like a new marker. <laughs> oh, 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 are you talking about the squiggle, the back and forth squiggle? <laughs> yeah. Okay, my mom listens to this podcast. My mom had that exact pin in gold, and I, oh. I remember it. It was such a, like, 80s, 90s yes, thing. That, it was like, a squiggle staple. back and forth line. Yeah. It, that shape, yes. So she's wearing that, and she says that Poppy Catering is full of whores, and we know she's mad at them, but still. And so they're suing her for unpaid debts of her deceased husband, and she's not standing for it because for obvious reasons and she knows the names of some of these girls and the woman who heads it she says is named laura winthrop and she is you know a society type so she is you know shocked and the yeah. police are too so they go rushing up to her estate yipping and yelping like frat boys outside it's very strange <laughs> I think they're trying to insinuate like they've been up all night, but okay. And then they bust in on Laura Winthrop, who's dripping with pearls at a dinner party. <laughs> and <laughs> right, don't we wish? And Laura Winthrop is played by Patricia Clarkson. Patricia Clarkson. Oh, 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 from uh, Six Feet Under? She was in Six Feet Under. Um, she was in a movie, uh, Pieces of April, that she almost got an Oscar for. She's been in The Green Mile. She's been in a million things. My favorite thing I've seen her in is Sharp Objects on. Um, Oh, yes. She's so good. She plays that very, like, dreamy, otherworldly, sort of slightly out-of-touch reality with character so well. Yes. She's played so... And when I was looking up her IMDb, because I wanted to see other things she was in, I've just seen her in so many things. Like, such a skilled actress. I'm a huge fan. And I actually... 
when I first saw her, I confused her with the woman who plays Aunt Zelda in Sabrina, the, re- the yes. reboot. Because she's also very good. Um, and they play similar type of characters, but different Oh, women. wait, wait, wait. I'm thinking of a different actress. She's not the one. No, no, no. She's not the one from Law and Order. Or uh, oh no, she is from Six Feet Under. She plays There's another the actor sister that I'm thinking in of. Six Feet Under. She plays um, I forget her name. Frances Conroy's character. She plays her sister. There's another actor that's very similar to her. You know what's so funny is I, I wonder like this whole time is it the same actress and I no there's another actress who this is, is like very me similar with the guy from Charmed and the guy from Nip Tuck. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm gonna think of it, but I'll I'll come back to you so you can keep keep going on the story. I'm, I'm curious to find out if this other actress that you're confusing her with is also the actress from Sabrina. <laughs> I wonder. I don't yeah. think so. No. Okay. So anyway, so that's who we have playing um, the part of Laura Winthrop, and she does a great job. So now in the courtroom, she's pleading not guilty, and there's a ruckus in the courtroom as the audience is all like, what do you call that? The audience of the courtroom, right? Like where the people <laughs> sit? I don't think it's an audience. I think it's the uh, public. The public? I feel like there's, a, I thought it was actually called the audience. I don't know. Look it up. <laughs> Look it up right now. What? Am no. I your assistant? I, I just was... have to keep Googling things this whole time. <laughs> I was actually going to say like, listeners out there, if you want to correct me on that one, please, please tell me. Because the only time I ever hear of that area uh, is when I'm watching like Judge Judy or the People's Court when it's actually an audience. So yeah, that's I might true. be stealing it from there. Anywho, the area where the public sits is made up of, we're supposed to believe they're made up of like street people, people from the street. They're all dressed in like typical, like fashiony clothes and like everyone else would normally be in like suits. They're loud. And of course they have like a crowd that they're trying to depict as street and rowdy. So they're primarily black. And whenever one of them gets out of order, it's a black sex worker or pimp screaming at each other in the middle of this scene. Like that would ever yeah. happen. And like any judge would allow it. This is very much like the, what you and I were talking about how they were like, how can we make the most offending offensive caricatures imaginable? Right. And I, I would like to believe that they're trying to draw a parallel between the type of sex work that Miss Winthrop is being involved with and the type of sex work yes. that is being persecuted on the streets on a daily basis and showing yes. like these might live in the same world and maybe we should be treating everyone the same way. I would like to believe that the that's the narrative. I don't think it it's is. It's not a great job of it <laughs> if it is. <laughs> but let's say they were drawing a real serious parallel here just so we can feel better about it. Frances Conroy is the actress oh, I'm thinking Oh, you're thinking of. of actually Frances Conroy's character in I said her name. I said that uh you did. Th- this woman plays oh, Frances Conroy's sister in On 6 what? Feet Under. Oh, she plays her sister in 6 Feet Under. Yes, she's not like a oh. the main principal principal cast, I don't think. She's in a lot of the episodes. Okay, I was thinking it was Frances. No, Conway. she's okay, been okay, in okay. American Horror Story. She's yes. been in a million. Yeah, she's also excellent. I love her in Six Feet Under. Yeah, she's the one who I was like other gotcha. kind of slightly out of touch with reality yes. characters. Yeah, she does it even more. She plays like 100%. really. She takes it to a different level, like a more yeah, psychological level. You know. Okay, they are in this courtroom scene, and they. They're trying to, you know, reduce her bail, and it kind of works. The judge says that she's just remanded on, like, I think $5,000, which to her is, like, probably street change, like, nothing. So she uh, is out on bail immediately, and she's, like, walking out to, like, um, 
the media interviewing her and she's talking like very casually about it. She's not taking it seriously at all. She's like, oh, whatever. They interrupted me in the middle of my dinner and they weren't even invited. <laughs> so they circle back to the station now and we have Cookie Molina being questioned in like an interrogation room. And he says, listen, I'll, I will tell you everything you want to know about this woman. I don't care, but I am going to get a plea deal and I'm walking and getting time served. So he is like very familiar with this process and he's right. like uh, he's like a player it seems like you know they're they're insinuating like oh man we're getting played uh, the whole right. time you know so stone is like listen let him walk uh we want we want her so I, I don't care let him walk i don't care and then the newspaper calls her in the next scene million dollar madam and there's these repeated use of the term whorehouse throughout the rest of the episode which i'm just gonna delete from any time it said <laughs> and she's apparently they find out she's made complaints to her building manager about the heat and i think this is another one of those weird coincidences like give me a break like this would ever i don't know so then they go to question her building manager and it's basically phyllis from the office and she's just got a worse attitude and uh she provides hardly anything useful it was like why is this even happening like, what was the point of the scene to prove that there she were several owns the scenes house? like that in this episode? Weird. So they go to they go through the client list later on. I don't know why they're doing that later on. First, they got to go talk to Phyllis. Now we're going to go through her client list. And they go to ask like an older man who's clearly like has political power if he would testify or if they can compel him to testify. And he's like, uh, I'll fire you. I'll have you fired. And so Stone is like, OK, so guess not. Yeah. Now they go back to Stone's office and there's a man from the mayor's office already waiting for them. And it's another big star. Who is it? He is uh, unnamed in the episode. He just plays a lawyer's aide, but it's Courtney B. Vance, who is, I think, very, very handsome and talented. He's been in a lot of things from the Hunt for Red October to he played Johnny Cochran on American Crime Story. He was on ER. And for our purposes, he's uh, later on a spinoff of Law & Order. He's in Law & Order Criminal Intent as a principal cast member for a very long time as ADA Ron Carver. Huh, interesting. And here we are getting our first look at him, but he is oh, obviously yeah, he is not playing the same person. Oh, yeah, he's, you've seen him in a bunch of things when you see him now, especially. Yeah. Like, he yeah. looked very familiar to me when I was seeing him, and I thought, is oh, he just in... like a Law & Order player? But I'm like, oh, my God, I totally know who that is. He's in um, Lovecraft Country, which I keep meaning to watch. I hear it's really great. I've heard really good things about that as well. Yeah. So Courtney B. Vance is mentioning that the mayor loves the work they've done with prostitution, quote unquote, and suggests that maybe a task force to fight crack would be in order. And what do you think about that, Stone? And Stone makes this like tongue in cheek comment about the war against crack that suggests that he knows it's BS, which if so, we all know it's BS. Right. <laughs> which if so, if they were really communicating that like it's it's BS, that's great. Yeah. But that didn't happen really nearly enough in real life, unfortunately. So he leaves uh, the room, and then outside of the courthouse, there's this heated argument between Stone and the defense attorney, and he's basically saying, like, you're asking for too harsh, harsh of a conviction on her, you'll never get it, and she's going to walk. But he calls his bluff and, like, walks on, saying, too bad, and eventually the attorney says, okay, she'll plead to promoting prostitution only. But Stone is like, no, I want her to do prison time. Not jail time, prison time. So now we have Stone and Robinette back in the offices, and the ADA has some bad news, Jolene's blood sample was used in a blind screening test for HIV, and she's tested positive. Mm -hmm. And so the next scene is them at her house where she's preparing dinner, and she says, listen, I can't testify. I changed my mind because... She 
Mit- she's doing the classic TV dinner preparation yes. of chopping peppers. <laughs> yeah, she's chopping peppers next to a bowl of like yeah. cold lettuce. Yeah, um, with no other sign of cooking. Nothing in the else room. in sight. Yes, just chopping peppers. And she's she says she can't testify because Laura Winthrop's been really good to her. And she's holding a knife. The way she's <laughs> holding it, she's holding it facing upwards, so the handle's down, then the blade is up. It's a very big knife, and she's holding her palms against the blade of the knife. And then the blunt end of the knife. Yeah. The, no. All I could think of the whole scene was anxiety of her cutting herself. I and literally thought she was about to like stab herself in the chest. Yeah, me for too. A minute. Me too. For a minute, I really, I was like, there's no other reason. It was no. so bizarre, but yeah, it's an odd choice. But other than that, it is a pretty, in my opinion, compelling scene um, on her part. Other than, her, other than her last line. Oh, what was, oh, I know. I forgot about that part. Yeah. <laughs> they I like didn't tell her about down. her diagnosis. And then like, there's like a few moments of silence while she's processing. And then she like fondles the peppers and goes healthy foods. And then it just cuts to yeah. the next scene. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> when that happened, the healthy food scene, I was like, kind of like in the moment, like they did do a good job. And I yeah. think she does a really good job of like shock and like denial at first and stuff. And in a really short moment, you know, um, yeah. especially for this show at this time. But then as soon as that moment happened, Davey goes, uh, same. <laughs> so over keto. Yeah, so like I found it moving again, but I, you know, I'm not the best benchmark because I've cried at commercials. <laughs> We're back in the courtroom and Stone the is- Sarah McLaughlin commercials or like Charmin? You know what? The ones that really get me are the ones that are like uh, like Christmas time, holiday Pepto time. <laughs> the Pandora bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so glad you saw that though. You should also watch the Christmas candle one. Um, it was also suggested when you searched for the- the Pandora bracelet. The Pandora bracelet commercial. It's a song, okay. and it's done in like the style of like a Winona Judd song, like an old country ish, but Ooh, like okay. mainstream ballad. And it's about how this Christmas candle gets passed around. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so good. Whew. Okay, so we got court back. We got court. We got stone. We got court. Back. <laughs> we got court back in stone. We got stone back in court, and he's. Have you noticed, by the way, that stone? I'm sorry to keep interrupting. No, you. no. Have you noticed that Stone is the closest talker? Like, he oh. really likes to be two inches maximum from somebody else's face when he's talking to them. I have noticed that, and I, I honestly oh. think it's, a, like, a deliberate choice. Like, I think he's trying Maybe. to show that he gets right he's into in your... Charge. Like, that he gets into your personal space and, and disarms you. Uh, yeah. That's my it guess. It freaks me out. I hate people being that close to me when they're me talking too, to me. Because it is disarming, and it's also uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. So it is, it's like a total control move. It's like someone getting into your space and saying, I, I'm here and you're going to back yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. So he's questioning Poppy, es- a client of Poppy Escorts. This whole next slew of um, witnesses is very strange to me. We've never seen many of them before, and we don't know how they were compelled to testify and whatever, but the power, we're never, the power of Christ. Every time you say compel, I love that I word. So yeah. it's going to be happening throughout our series. Yay. <laughs> so he's questioning this one client who I think the point of this is to show that the courtroom isn't taking it very seriously. He is talking oh, about yeah. he's slept with over 2000 women from poppy escorts and the courtroom is like laughing about it. Jolene is a girl he specially requests because she's quote hard on everything. And like the courtroom <laughs> is laughing. The jury is like nudging each other. It's bizarre. They're like, get it? Yuck, Erection yuck, 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 joke. <laughs> exactly. They're 11. And so now there's like an, they're all drinking Mountain Dew and eating Doritos. <laughs> uh, and now there's a client of like higher status, I guess. He's like an older man dressed nicer and he's, 
testifying against his will clearly he's like very sheepish and he's hired escorts from them before and one has used a whip he's had he has to say out loud he's very humiliated the ju- the jury is like ooh and then cross examination with the defense helps him normalize this and i think it's a good thing <laughs> that they do yeah. this but for the episode it's supposed to be bad for the prosecution because yeah. like everyone's buying it everyone's like sympathizing with him now because the whole point what what they did to normalize it it's good that they're normalizing talk about sex work and any sort of like kink or anything like that it's not great that the way he was doing it was by saying she didn't really use the whip she just held it right and he's like yeah 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 she just held it as if it would be worse right you know so i would give this a b minus (laughs) (laughs) which honestly is a pretty solid grade for law and order for sure especially now so now they have Cookie on the stand. He's answering whether lots of the clients had bad hearts, which I don't know why he wouldn't have. They, there wasn't an objection right there. Like he would ever be able to know that. Right. Like really bad defense attorney, in my opinion. He says that he jokes that the girls weren't interested in the hearts. They were interested in a different part of the body. And there's like right. this stupid laughter again. It's just meant to show, I think, that this is not being taken with the severity it should be because right. it's a white woman running this like business it's not right and they're prostitution yeah they're just like mocking the idea that sex work is an occupation right yeah yeah and so then he says though that he's heard miss winthrop say before and it was like not long before the crime quote a two-hour session will either kill him or cure him i don't care which as long as their gold card still works so now we're seeing she's not as kind and Gentle as we think. <laughs> yeah. So DA Schiff has a short scene where he warns Stone to take the deal because it's too risky to prove that Winthrop is guilty. But we all know how Stone is. He hates to take a deal if it's not, quote, quote, the right thing to do in his mind. Yeah. So back in court, there's a woman who's worked on the Health and Human Resources Board, and she reports that 70 to 85% of sex workers tested HIV positive, but the incubation time is so long, it makes it really hard to get an accurate figure. And on the stand, Stone questions Jolene again, or Jolene now, asking how many men she slept with under poppy escorts. At, at work and she's been there for 18 months and she says maybe a thousand and the defense points out that the incubation time is long and forces her to now say whether she's a virgin or not whether she was a virgin or not which is totally before she started irrelevant. working for for winthrop exactly which is irrelevant dehumanizing and it's this really sad moment another moment where i feel like joey lean does a good job of acting yeah and then stone redirects again and says just to clarify before you started working there, how many men had you slept with? And she says three. And they're all still very, very healthy. So on the stand, we have Winthrop now. And she is talking about how she requires all of her girls to have regular checkups and they are required to have health insurance. And Can I just interject something really quickly? <laughs> yeah. So I realize 1990 was a very, very different time for HIV, but I just want to clarify contemporarily because that people with HIV can still be very healthy in this episode. They are drawing comparisons to say like HIV equals unhealthy. Right. Yeah. They're, they're like equating it to like a, like a death sentence, like a, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she says that she has everyone do checkups and, and have health insurance and stone questions her like pretty hard about whether 
she'd hire someone who was HIV positive. And she says, no, she, she wouldn't do that because she wants to protect her family and she views all of her girls as family. She compares her business to like a finishing school and says that she cares a great deal about everybody that comes in there. She does more than just employ them. She like, you know, gets them street smart. She gets them business acumen and she teaches them how to like, you know, present themselves and society and all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. Stone then asks her, have you ever had to fire anybody for testing positive? And she said, yes, you know, probably about a dozen in the time she's had this business. And he asks if she's ever tried to help any of them, visit any of them afterwards, ask about them, find out if they're okay. And she says no to all of these questions. Um, she says that in a way that like, it's clear she's sort of realizing this fact for the first time. Yeah, And they're kind of, it, she has a moment where it seems like she's starting to realize maybe she's sort of gotten wrapped up in the business. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, in the business yeah, like maybe she doesn't care as much as she thought she right. says she does. Yeah, like yeah. she's starting to question like maybe I, why haven't I done that, you know? So she's, it's, you know, it's a moment. So she says no, and um, he says that her tax return reports that she's made over a million dollars in a in in one year of business, and she's never spent a dime of it. He reminds her on anyone to help them that she supposedly cared about, and never called any client either that had been with her girls and warned them that they had been with someone who had tested HIV positive. And she confirms yeah. all of this, admits to it all. After this, they are all speaking in the hallway. It's like, a, I guess, a recess in the court. We don't really know why, but they're all sort of in the hallway, the two teams, and she suggests to him a plea of involuntary manslaughter if, if she's going to be out in five. And Stone says, you know, two and a half on good behavior. And she says, I'm always on my best behavior, Mr. Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then outside the courtroom, the foreman of the jury is being interviewed by a reporter, and she confesses that if it were up to her, she personally probably would, would have voted to convict. And um, Robinette and Stone are walking by in the background. And this was the thing I thought you were going to talk about that was really strange to me. They're walking by in the background. It's the last scene of the episode. And Robinette, I were to assume that he overheard the reporter who's very far away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. says like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, taken the deal. And Stone says, maybe, but not bad for a couple of and I could not understand the last word he said. And it's the last word of the episode. We rewound it a million times. Do you want me to I looked do you want it me up. to go look really No, no, no. Quick? I looked it up because I was oh, like okay. so anyway. It he says trays. T-R-E-Y-S. Oh, I Googled that too because it, it, it. I watch TV with captions because I like watching with captions. I do too. I, I wish I, I had, had to captions Google that on word this. too. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. So I looked it up and I looked up the script and found the word trays. And then I had to look up that word, <laughs> which is, a, I guess, a basketball term for a three-pointer. No. What does it oh. mean? Well, I That's think all it I does reference find. like it does reference threes. I think it means, uh, I think it's actually a, a card playing reference, like a couple of threes, a pair of threes what does that mean like i think i think he's basically saying like you know we had like kind of circumstantial shitty evidence to try this case and so we didn't do bad with a pair of threes got it like a that okay i'm sorry that's not clear that's not clear at all and that's not they always end with like a moment you know yes he stone has some good ones he always ends with like this line very quotable. <laughs> this was yes. a severe miss, and I'm going to guess that in the writing room, someone was just pushing for this really hard and wouldn't I back down. S- and they were like, I- fine, put it at the I end of the episode. Do a, uh, 
I want us to do an, an improv episode where we give each other the concluding trial case, and then we have to come up with the stone line in Ooh. response to it. <laughs> that could be fun. Okay, that could be fun. We could we could try that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was the end of the episode. Great job. Thank you. Really, really good job. Well, Matthew, are you ready to hear about the true crime that inspired this episode? Yeah, I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know how similar it is. Okay, great. So the my research for this true crime came, of course, I got info from Wikipedia. I also uh, got info from a uh, Washington Post article by a journalist named Margot Hornblower, which is possibly the best journalist name I've ever heard. The University of Virginia School of Law Archives, an AE biography, New York Daily News, the New York Post, and a 2018 t- Town & Country magazine article. Hmm. Okay, so this episode was based on the Sydney Biddlebarrows case. And incidentally, the name Sydney Biddlebarrows to me sounds like a Harry Potter character. <laughs> I was like, Sydney, but it reminds me of like um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel or something. <laughs> Very much, yes. She was uh, better known as the quote, Mayflower Madam, which will make sense in a minute. Oh, okay. I don't know this one, I don't think. Okay. So Sydney Biddlebarrows, who I shall henceforth refer to as SBB, <laughs> comes from the Biddle family of Philadelphia, which. When I looked at her Wikipedia, okay, so number one, she has her own Wikipedia page, which is not surprising because this was a, a really big case. Uh-huh. But the idea that like your family name has its own Wikipedia page is just a level of like finger in the banana. air. <laughs> it, yes, very. It's very strange to me. Okay, very very so, high society. Yes. Um, And the reason for that is because the Biddle family was descended directly from people who came over on the Mayflower. Mm. So passengers William Brewster, John Howland, and Thomas Rogers, who arrived in the province of New Jersey in 1681. Oh, New Jersey. Shout out to my home state. (laughs) Shout out. (laughs) So uh, SBB is uh, uh, derived, descended (laughs) from these original Mayflower passengers. Gotcha. And she was born in 1952 and attended the Stonely Burnham Boarding School for Girls in Greenfield, Massachusetts. So she graduated also from the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. So the Washington Post article on SBB says Sydney Biddlebarrows is a preppy, a descendant of two Mayflower pilgrims, a slender blonde who wears designer clothes, vacations in the Hamptons, and contributes to charity. And the uh, article goes on to have a quote from a former boyfriend who describes her as very wasp, very straight, very much the Puritan. Boring. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And look at that little callback to preppy. I know, right? I was thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, another preppy case. But I guess this was the height of preppiness. It just shows that this is what was going on at the time. More evidence. Yeah. More, it's piling up. So in 1975, she worked as an assistant to a buyer for Abraham and Strauss, which I had never heard of, but I Googled it and it was eventually absorbed by the Macy's company. So it was kind of like being an assistant to a buyer for Macy's. Okay. Unclear to me whether it was like a specific store buyer or like the main buyer for the Macy's corporation, or I guess Abraham and whatever I just said, Strauss. Yeah. So a little unclear, but she was fired because not for legitimate reasons. And again, the details, despite this being a really, really big case, it was very hard to find a lot of like really great details about it. I think because it was such a big case because it was so sensational. Yeah. Not necessarily because it was like a a really complicated, convoluted case. Right. So there's not like a lot of like 
um, strange hard facts. There's a lot of like Correct. supposition and and, um, and perspective and and so and so okay. and hemming and hawing. So uh, <laughs> hullabaloo and balderdash and the hoot nanny by the yeah. end of it. Uh, so she was fired because she didn't want to play along with a kickback scheme, which I'm assuming is some kind of illicit thing. Right. So she was fired, but then she got a part-time job answering phones in 1978. And while she was doing that, she met a woman who arranged the phone calls for an escort escort service and decided to try that job out for herself. So in 1979, SBB decided to open up her own escort service and Wait, gave herself the- I'm sorry, 1989 you said? 79. Seven, did I say 89? No, I didn't. I probably misheard you. But how many- how many years after? So she was working doing answering phones in 78. And then in oh, 79, wow. she opened her own escort service. That's, an, that's a real entrepreneur. Well, okay. So we'll get we'll get into discussing entrepreneurship later. Okay. So she gave herself the alias Sheila Devon, which is not as good as Sydney Biddlebarrows. No. But hey. And she opened three different escort services called Cachet, Elan, and Finesse, which you... Uh, Oh my god. They just god. sound like picture the those names are the names of books at like <laughs> hair salons from the 90s. Like you can see like cachet and finesse and then like it's a book full of like really feathered hairdos and <laughs> Oh my god, I could totally see that. Like those fashion of it's just like fashion headshots. Illustration. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, headshot and, illustrations. And like it's got it's got like the the Dixie cup, like kind of uh, teal and purple swish, like yes, thing in the back. Very color blocked. Like the actual image yes. of the of the female is like all one color white face with just like yep. blush. And yes, just blush. Harsh and maybe a harsh little bit of blue eyeliner yes. or blue uh, eyeshadow. Yeah. <laughs> I was also gonna say. Um, oh, it sounds like names that like men think of for like feminine yes. products. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. So reportedly, SPB ran a pretty tight ship at Cachet. Her employees were fined. This I, I'm not. I'm not applauding this or endorsing this. Her employees were fined anywhere from ten to twenty five dollars for gaining any weight or being tardy for meetings. Oh, so they they they're like, oh, she ran a really like tight business. I think that's kind of gross, but hey, yeah. <laughs> So most of the women who worked for her were students or models or aspiring actresses. Of course. And she required the women who worked for her to get regular medical checkups. And they served this uh, really high-profile clientele. They were industrialists, high-powered business executives, lawyers, foreign diplomats, politicians. And there were many, many mentions of Arabian oil sheiks in all of the articles that I read. Hmm, Okay. And uh, the rates that uh, her business charged were anywhere from $200 to $400 an hour, which uh, did not include sex. That was just for time, like time spent together. Uh-huh. And But it did include, or there was also a deluxe overnight option, which included dinner, dancing, and, quote, a show for $2,000. Oh, okay. I was unable to find details on what this show entailed, but I think we can all imagine. Right. So in 1983, a a Columbia journalism student named Elizabeth Collier posed as a job applicant for Cachet for a article in her school paper uh, and interviewed, like uh, applied to be part of this escort agency. Oh, wow. I know, right? 
And she described SBB as really nice, very pleasant, very gregarious, and she was really well organized, an MBA type. So she's she's sort of known, and all of the the descriptions of her is that she's this very savvy businesswoman and and kind of an, an entrepreneur. Wow, Harriet the Spy really got in there. <laughs> she did. So uh, before Collier arrived for her interview, Barrows, who was operating under the the name Sheila Devon, told her, "quote." Dress like you're going to have lunch with your grandfather at 21, which is an expensive New York restaurant. So I think she wanted the girls to look respectable and, and you know, pretty, but what's the word I'm looking for? Prim? Um, proper? proper? Yeah, I guess buttoned maybe proper. Up. Buttoned up, sure. Yeah. And so Collier went to the interview and, and wore pearls and a conservative silk dress and told Barrows that she was a graduate student in English at Columbia and filled out the application with her. And the application asked her questions like what foreign languages she speaks, uh, what her hobbies and interests were. And after after kind of filling out that application, she was invited back for a two-hour training session. So she passed that kind of initial screening. Harriet the Spy. <laughs> I guess she's trilingual. I guess so, yeah. At the kind of two-hour training session, Collier was given eight pages of instructions uh, with tips on how to circumvent police and hotel security and proper ways to dress. And uh, in that training session, she said that Barrows told her that uh, most of her clients were wealthy executives that made over $100,000 a year, which today is equivalent to $250,000 a year. So she was dealing with some pretty wealthy clients. Yeah, totally. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, Collier said that Barrows made the men sound really nice. So in February of 1984, so this is now f- about five years after she started the business, a, a tip from an informant led the NYPD to investigate a potential illegal escort service called Cachet. And by October of that year, the police had sufficient evidence to raid an apartment on the Upper West Side, which was supposedly the office of this, what they referred to as a prostitution ring. And the apartment's owner and CEO was Sheila Devon, a.k.a. SBB. And in a Washington Post article about the raid, Lieutenant William Bayer of the New York Police, who is Lieutenant of the Police Public Morals Division, which I don't know if that still exists, but it's kind of creepy. It's gross. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he estimates that aside from the 12,000 yearly arrest of what he calls, and again, I'm quoting, these are not things I would say, traditionalist hot pants types who work the streets. Oh my there are, God. Yeah. There are at least 30 high-class call girl outfits operating in the city with as many as 30 to 60 women in each of them. And he said they advertise freely and added that police rarely investigate them unless there's a citizen complaint. So I, I point that out because I just want to emphasize that that's just another example of how we police people of lower socioeconomic status and often people of color differently than we do people in positions of privilege who are performing the same exact you know, quote unquote, illegal acts. Mm -hmm. So according to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the operations, SBB's operation was, quote, the largest prostitution ring known to the Organized Crime Control Bureau of the police department and grossed over a million dollars per year. So I think, again, today that would be about 2.5 million per year. So pretty profitable business. I would say so. Uh, Police said that the services were run like a corporation with women sent out with credit card machines, which... In 1980? 
what like did that come with its own station wagon for the size of the for thing? real weren't they still using that thing that like you know what maybe it was that thing that, like, they're like shh, shh, shh. Yeah, yeah with the exactly. paper the paper receipts okay that makes a lot more sense <laughs> yeah okay oh i hated um, those oh god i hated those they never worked they never ever they worked for like the first day and after that it was just a nightmare when credit card machines would go down when i was working retail it was just a nightmare oh my god then you have to get like you have to get that machine out, and then you have to get whatever little thing you created yourself yes. out of whatever materials you could find that, like, <laughs> scrapes the card numbers yes. a little bit better than the actual machine. <laughs> oh, my God. It is just one of those things where you just want to be like, just take whatever you want and leave. For real? Like, like, I don't, like, I don't even care. Checking you out. <laughs> I didn't even care if this card's expired. Just run the, <laughs> run the machine and get the hell out of here. <laughs> okay. So... In the raid on the cache offices, police confis- confiscated extensive res- records, including a list of over 3,000 clients, many of them who were, again, these like big high-level business executives as well in, in kind of prominent corporations in the U.S. and also Europe and Asia. And so this really set off like a huge tabloid explosion because essentially what this was was a, a sex scandal of like the most wealthy people in New York and, and you know, kind of across the world, right? Yeah. And they called her the Mayflower Madam because, again, she was this, like, upper-crust woman who... Well, okay, let me take that back. She was kind of portrayed as this upper-crust woman, but her parents were, like, working-class folks from New Jersey, but she just had this, like, family lineage and this kind of, like, poise and uh, manner about her that made her see... And the the clients that she served were really, like, rich clients, so it kind of gave this air of... Uh, prestige and and fanciness or whatever to to her yeah it's like a social climber type thing but successfully i guess yeah yeah and it was just one of those things where it was like you know nobody everybody's favorite gossip is the salacious shit that rich people do yeah so it really set off this tabloid war between the New York Daily News and the New York Post, who were each trying to kind of outdo each other with leaks and sensational headlines to get papers sold. <laughs> In this, like, uh, tabloid war, essentially, the New York Daily News was the first to publish 11-year-old nude photographs of Barrows. And I had to read that sentence multiple times because when I first read it, it sounded like they published nude photos of her when she was 11 right, years old. Right, right. <laughs> right? It was photos from 11 years prior. I so I was like, okay, thank you the know, Lord. still intrusive. But I was right, like, right. did they really publish, like, child pornography? God. Oh, my okay. God. So these photos were sold to the Daily News by a man named Stephen Rosansky, who was uh, Sidney Middlebarrow's former boyfriend and classmate at FIT. Gross. Right? Thank you. My note literally says, Stephen, you're a skis ball. Trash. Oh, my God. Total trash. Yeah. But the photos, in addition to being sold to the Daily News, were also sold to the New York Post. And the Daily News immediately published them. And the Post <laughs> tried to take the high road for a minute. And they were like, these photos are not suitable for publication in a family newspaper. <laughs> and then literally they were like, ah, well, they're selling more newspapers, so let's publish them after oh all. My and literally God. published them the next day. Wow. And the uh, the publication of her nude photographs was also accompanied with her genealogical chart tracing her to the Pilgrims uh, with the headline, A Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, my God. Give me a... Who, who cares also? Honestly. Who cares? Now, supposedly this time, the Post was also leaking names of her, uh, the alleged clients of her business. 
um, including a couple of well-known athletes, but the police refused to confirm any details. And Lieutenant Bayer said, uh, kind of about the New York Daily News and New York Post, he said, this is a big struggle between those two newspapers. They smell blood. There's a list of 3,000 names. It's like the Profumo affair. Remember how the British government was brought down? And for anybody who doesn't know, the Profumo scandal involved people in the prime minister's government uh, and an affair with a a uh, sex worker named Christine Keeler, who is also the mistress of a Soviet embassy attache. I don't know what that means. That's a copy and paste. But they're they're making this comparison between this and the Profumo scandal, which l- kind of rocked the British government. Okay. Yeah, I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I learned about it by watching the... Have you ever watched The Crown? No. Was it good? <gasps> it's really good. You would, I think you would like it. Okay. Do you yeah. like... Well, period stuff? I do, some t- most of the time. Not always, but okay. if it's done well, I like it. It's got some really phenomenal acting in it. It's like beautifully, it's set in different time periods, and so it's kind of like beautifully period costumes and things like that as well. So I would I would highly re- recommend it. And, and one of the episodes talks about the Profimo scandal. Mm, okay. So Lieutenant Bayer said, I'm not going to tell you who's on the list because a lot of in- innocent people shouldn't get their names smeared. They may have engaged in sex they may not have. You can't be sure in every case. So like, I, you know, I appreciate that he's like, we don't have the facts. This is just a list of names. So we're not just going to give you a list of names because then people can just drag them through the mud for nothing. But also in that is kind of the implication, like if they did do this, then they should be dragged through the mud. Yeah. In July of 1985, uh, Sidney Barrows left the Manhattan Criminal Court a free woman uh, after pleading guilty to charges of promoting prostitution, kind of just like in the episode, actually. Yeah. And she received a $5,000 fine, which is, I think, also what she got in the episode, right? Well, okay, so she in... You said she pleaded guilty only to promoting prostitution? The, that's what my notes say. Okay, there yeah. might have been it's, something else. It's similar, but it's it changed in the episode because of the, you know, the HIV aspect they added into it. So yes. she accidentally, she originally was only going to, pro, she said, I will only plead to promoting prostitution, but that didn't have any jail okay. time with it. Okay. In my research, I, because I was trying to see what was similar to the episode and what wasn't, there was no like person who died of a heart attack and you know murder attempt and all that like none of that happened and i even was kind of curious because again this was sort of like the height of the hiv aids epidemic whether that had anything to do with this case either and like why it kind of maybe came to light like it did in the episode but i couldn't really find anything about that there was one article that mentioned that like some attention maybe was drawn to her business because of an a, like an STI outbreak, but it didn't really say what, and that was literally all that was said in one single article. So, you know, who knows if that's in any way accurate? Yeah, I feel like Law and Order, like that's how they do the whole. That's how they're able to do the whole ripped from the headlines angle. Is like they yeah. they inspire the episodes like largely based on characters or particular events or like the more sensational parts of a crime, but then they take a lot of liberties. A lot of liberties, yes. With this one, a very strange choice, but yeah. Very. Okay, so she pleads guilty to promoting prostitution. She pays a $5,000 fine, but she gets no jail time. And the New York Daily News quote, this is a a quote that I just thought was so fucking stupid that I had to share it. (laughs) So they say, it enabled her to walk out of the 11th floor courtroom at 100 Center Street wearing a simple black bracelet instead of shiny steel handcuffs. Oh my God. That journalist needs to find another occupation. They really Sorry (laughs) if you're that journalist. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know you pat yourself on the back for that one, but that was like... 
That's like how a like fifth grader ends their yes. book report and goes, yes, yes A plus. That's right. Yeah. A plus. I think that same day or maybe the, the next day, she holds a press conference at a restaurant, oddly, and <laughs> is photographed holding a glass of champagne and flashing a victory sign. And she tells reporters that she pled guilty to protect both, quote, my clients and my girls and says, I hope everyone appreciates it. Because as part of the agreement, all of the records containing the names of her clients were returned to her. So she says that she pled guilty to A, avoid trial, and B, prevent the exposure of anyone else involved in this business or any of their clients. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, her, yeah. So, in her, uh, her lawyers said in the settlement that, uh, essentially the city kind of just threw in the towel and Barrows has hinted in some interviews that several of her, like, really influential clients called the district attorney on her behalf to, like, uh, persuade them not to not to kind of throw the book at her which we i think we got a little bit of a hint of that in the episode that there were some like rich powerful people involved in uh, who were clients of her business and they were like uh hey please don't do anything with this case because you're going to expose a lot of really powerful people yeah they mentioned that a few times throughout yeah. like the middle of the episode when they were like just sort of coming upon Laura Winthrop. Yeah. So, uh, what, so Barrows hints at that, that they, that, uh, several of her clients called the district attorney, but when reached for, uh, when asked for a comment, the district attorney, a woman named Mary de Bourbon speaking on behalf of the district attorney's office, her response was quote, baloney and applesauce. <laughs> <laughs> Could that be the title of the episode? Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Bologna and ew. Bologna and applesauce. <laughs> I love bologna. It, oh, I gosh, know that sounds so it. crazy to say it. It's I know it's just gross. It's just a childhood like flavor. <laughs> yeah. So after she, after she pays her fine and is basically uh, free of all charges at that point, she goes on to publish a book uh, by the title of The Mayflower Madam. And in 1987, a TV movie about her life was made starring, who do you think? Ooh. Somebody who was big in the 80s, who I'll give you another hint, had a TV brand, uh, had a TV character named, or a TV show named after the main character. Okay. Lucille Ball? N- no. No. Lucille Ball died in like. Oh my God! What am I talking about? I'm not even thinking about what t- what the time period is. Who had a name? Not Mary Tyler Moore. No, not not Mary Tyler Moore. She did a lot of TV movies. And I'll give you another hint. It has to do with the news. Oh, <gasps> Candace Candace Bergman. That's right. Candace Bergen plays Sydney Biddlebarrows oh. in the TV movie about her life. Oh my gosh, I love Murphy Brown. I do too. I forgot about that show. So, uh, Sydney Biddlebarrows <laughs> did an interview with a journalist named Bill Boggs uh, after she published her book. And uh, in a really unsur- I watched the interview. You can find it on YouTube. In a really unsurprising turn of events, he really focuses on like the salacious aspects of her story and essentially kind of tries to imply that she had some sort of like fetish in being involved in other people's sex lives. Oh my God. And I love, I love her in this moment because her response when he says that is, I think you're projecting. Oh, good for her. <laughs> and then he keeps kind of pushing at it. And she says, I think that's why you would get involved in this kind of work, not me. Right. And after that, she publishes two more books uh, called Mayflower Manners, Etiquette for Consenting Adults. 
and Just Between Us Girls, Secrets About Men from the Mayflower Madam, which from what I can kind of see from reviews and some of the the interviews on TV, they didn't, it was, she sort of capitalized on that notoriety, but it's not like the books really gave away much information. Okay. To I was going to say, did she just like undo all the work she did no, with that last book? No. So after she publishes those two books, she opened up her own management consulting business focused on customer service. And in 2009, published a book called Uncensored Sales Strategies, a radical new approach to selling your customers what they really want. Oh, wow. That's... That's like, um, not double entendre. That's like, that could be taken yeah. some different ways for taken, sure. Yes. So then I found an article from 2019, a town and country article that says, what stands out most in retelling Barrow's story in 2019 is how much it smacks of agency and how neatly it would fit into Silicon Valley's startup narrative. The thumbnail version goes like this. A few years after leaving a two-year program at FIT, Barrows found herself unemployed. She took a job answering phones at an escort service, spotted an untapped market, and concluded that she could do better running a service herself. And Barrows says that the business at the time was run by men with, excuse my language, low foreheads and big nuts. (laughs) She says there were people who called who I could tell were not the kind of people who were looking for, like, hot babes. And so she she saw this opportunity for kind of developing this high high end service and she says that of her clients what they wanted was quote someone who was a genuinely nice person and that's what i gave them i'm really good at creating an experience and that is the story of sydney biddlebarrows the mayflower madam that inspired this episode that's great that was really good i've never heard of her before and i found like several articles that definitely drew comparisons to the heidi fleiss story sure uh so when you were like guessing it it's so funny because when i saw this episode i i thought the same thing i was like oh i just know this is going to be based on the heidi fleiss story but i think heidi fleiss was maybe 10 years later maybe not that many maybe like five or six years. yeah i feel like it was the 90 i feel like it was the 90s but i just feel like it was like the mid 90s so i was i i was like i don't know but yeah that's really interesting i'm you know good for her i'm glad she is successful still yeah well great job on on retelling that i uh thanks I was like really tempted to like, I was like, oh, this episode obviously is going to be about madams or sex work or something. And I was really tempted to try to look up some, some cases. So I'm, I'm glad I yeah. didn't. Oh, I was going to say, so it's so funny because that you were saying like you wanted to look things up when I am just recapping the episode and I don't get to research the true crime. It's so hard for me not to go and look at what it's going to be because I really want to know, but I love, I love the surprise of being told the story. But it's really hard for me to not go look at what it's going to be. I know, because you love spoilers as it is. I do love yeah. spoilers. Yeah. I like to be in the new. Yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I was, it wasn't spoiled for me. So that is the end of our episode. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Yeah. Oh, and oh, <laughs> don't forget to rate us, review, and subscribe. Uh, even if you would just go follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ripped Headlines and retweet us or tell people to follow us or something, it'll really help and help other people find us. So uh, it takes just a few seconds out of your life to make a huge difference in ours. Yeah, I know you hear this at the end of every podcast you probably listen to, especially newer ones, but sincerely, it you know, like, It takes just a few seconds to do it. We all hear this and skip past it, but it would be so, so, so helpful for us. And uh, we want to keep doing this for you. So yeah. And the feedback and and responses we've gotten so far is pretty incredible. So thank you to everybody who's listening and has already emailed or or reviewed or all of those things. Yeah. We love you guys so much already. And we just, we just began this relationship. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye.